welcome to my uh, two-class mini-series in uh, canonicity and the scriptures. This is going to be a meta-series. It's going to be talking about the Bible instead of preaching from the Bible. I'm going to talk about it. And uh, I brought a few books that I may or may not refer to. I may or may not read chapters from. There's four of the best ones up there on the screen. Um, th- these are books about how we got the Bible. Um, some of them quite recently, some of them actually published within the last 20 years, some of them from 30 and 40 years ago, but still worth reading. I'll talk some more about them. Um, so I could do a scripture reading. It is. It's, it's, it's hot off the Xerox machine. Um, this is the oldest, it's a copy of, not this one physically. This is the oldest Hebrew manuscript that we have of the Old Testament. Um, but it shows you um, exactly how the scrolls work. They were divided into columns. And whoop, there it goes. Scroll too far. But you roll from left to right, and the columns are have to be lined. There's a a specific number of lines per column and a maximum number of letters um, per line allowed. The oldest one we've got is called the Leningrad Codex. It dates back to about 1000 AD. That's the the oldest complete manuscript of um, the Old Testament that we have. So, and of course, this is the more convenient. We are so blessed. Actually, there's that. And then there's this. Um, and the beautiful thing about this, because I use this every Saturday morning when we do Bible study, um, here's Blue Letter Bible. It's my app um, that I dearly love. So, there's the 27 books of the New Testament and the 39 books of the Old Testament. Very conveniently for the app, both those numbers are divisible by three, so they can do them in three columns. And you can get any verse you want, and you can touch it with your finger and get the Hebrew text or the Greek text. It's just amazing. You know, we have the Library of Alexandria in our pockets. We have the accumulated wisdom of 3,000 years of recorded literature and mostly we use this to look at funny cat videos. So, you know, technology. Okay. Let me go get back to my screensaver so I know what time it is. I'll tell the old joke. You know what it means when a preacher puts a watch down on the podium? Nothing. Yeah, that's true. All right, let me pray um, before we tackle this really, really important topic. Father, thank you that you have given us your word, that you have not left us without a revelation of yourself, that you called a people whom you entrusted your word to, who faithfully kept it, who copied it, transmitted it, preserved it, read it, studied it, and prepared the way for the coming of your son. Thank you that you gave the church scriptures the accounts of Jesus' ministry, the account of the growth of the church, 
the letters of doctrine and instruction and the prophecy of your son's return. We thank you for the scriptures and what they show us about you, about your son Jesus, about the church, and what they call us to do and to be. Give me a clear mind. Help me to say the things that need to be said and not to wander too far from the topic. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to go through all this stuff. There'll be a quiz on the third Sunday. We'll see. And I apologize for my voice. Um, I lost my voice a week ago. If anybody's seen it, please let me know, because I would like to have it back. Um, I finally gave up, you know, typical male personality. I finally gave up and went to the doctor on Thursday. So he's now got me on enough steroids that I would uh, get disqualified from the Olympics. Um, but, but it is helping my voice come back. So, so how we got the Bible. I'm going to do this in two parts. I'm going to talk today about the Old Testament and next Sunday about the New Testament. That might be a mistake. Because um, the New Testament is actually much easier to explain than the Old Testament. Here, here's one of my favorite books. This is actually from the 1940s, but it's still in print. F.F. Bruce, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? Nice, fairly quick read. Um, University Press in England first published it. I recommend that one to you. Here's um, <clears throat> on the reliability of the Old Testament. Um, and, and let me... Just give you not my own summary because Professor Kitchen does it better than I could do it. Um, he's a fabulous scholar. Um, he describes a conversation that he had a long time ago with a fellow professor. And they were musing on the valuable role played by the late Professor F.F. F. Bruce's redoubtable but graciously written little volume entitled, Are the New Testament Documents Reliable?, which gave an eminently judicious assessment of its theme and has deservedly passed through many editions and reprintings. Out of which musings, my colleague Howard asked me, why doesn't someone do a like service in assessing the Old Testament? And in particular, why not you, Professor Kitchen? I protested, the task in these two cases is massively different. New Testament scholars need stray little beyond a single century. If you know the first century A.D., <clears throat> you know when the all you need to know about the times in which the New Testament was written. Every single book of the New Testament was written between 30 A.D., probably 90 A.D. <clears throat> and you have only four main languages to deal with, Greek and Latin from Europe, Hebrew and Aramaic for Palestine. Not bad, just four languages. Doing equal justice to the Old Testament meant a minimum span of 2,000 years overall of the ability to draw upon documents in vast quantity and variety in some 10 ancient Near Eastern languages and a whole patchwork quilt of cultures. Be reasonable, I said. And, of course, eventually he did it. This actually was published um, not too very long ago. 
And I haven't read all of it yet. It's very, very good, though. 2003, K.A. Kitchen, professor of um, Near Eastern Studies. Okay, so what's the problem? Next slide. Here's the problem. This came across my Facebook feed. This is a meme. It's a very popular meme. You may have seen it as well. Back when the Bible was written, then edited, then rewritten, then rewritten, then re-edited, then translated from dead languages, then retranslated, then edited, then rewritten, then given to kings for them to take their favorite parts, then rewritten, then re-rewritten, then translated again, and then given to the Pope for him to approve, then rewritten, then edited again, the re-re-re-re-rewritten again, all based on stories that were told orally 30 to 90 years after they happened to people who didn't know how to write. So... <clears throat> and, and I'm reminded of the uh, snarky comment by um, Dorothy Parker about a friend of hers who said, every word out of their mouth is a lie, including a and and the. But this is what the culture believes. This is what we are faced with. The, the common assumption and the common impression of the Bible is, it's completely made up. It's completely unreliable. It has been altered many, many times by Christians. That charge, by the way, was first made by Muhammad. But it's now spread to the whole world. The Christians made this up, and if they didn't make it up, they took the original writings and they changed them to suit their fancies. They put words in Jesus' mouth, or we have no idea what Jesus originally said. We have no idea really anything trustworthy about Jesus historically. All of which is a lie. Of course, it's even worse for the Old Testament, but um, I'll come back to the New Testament next week. Let me talk a little bit about how we got the Bible. Next slide. There's really two questions. Why do we have the 66 books that we have? 39 Old Testament. Remember, it's a multiple of three. 13 times three. And the 27 books of the New Testament... It's a multiple of three, nine times three. Why do we have those 66 books and not others? What made the difference? How do we get those? Because they're by different authors. So how did they wind up being collected together and presented as revelation? That's one question. Second question is, are we sure that the text of these 66 books that we have is what the authors originally wrote? Or is Muhammad's charge true? Did they get altered over the centuries? Did, did people make things up and put things in, leave things out? Or can we know with any assurance that we have something that's reliable? So let's talk a little bit about what we got here. Next slide. 39 books, 27 books. You can further break those down. The Old Testament has five books of the law, 12 books of history, five books of poetry, and 17 prophetic works. Those are the Old Testament books. New Testament, 27 books, five books of history, 21 letters on doctrine, and one book of prophecy. That makes it a little more graspable, I think, what we have. Next slide. 
our Old Testament obviously derives from the Jewish Old Testament. If you look in a Jewish Old Testament, or Tanakh, um, you will discover there's 22 books in the Jewish Old Testament versus our 39 books. They have the five books of the law, but then they have eight books of the prophets and nine books of writings. So what happened to the 17 books that are the difference between 39 and 22? Well, they're actually the same books. The Jewish Bible is arranged differently and counted differently. And good, next slide. The number of books is different, but the content is the same. Oh, no, you were back with the one with the arrows. There you go. So the five books of the law that are in the Jewish Old Testament are the same five books that we would refer to as the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'll, I'll, I'll do one rabbit trail. I'll probably do more, but I want to do this one now. Um, this is one of my favorite Bibles. This is the first Bible printed in any language other than Latin. When printing was invented in 1453, Gutenberg, very first book on his press was a Bible, but it was in Latin. This is the first printed Bible that was in a language other than Latin, and it's from 1534. Um, and I've got a, it's not a real one. This is a facsimile, but it's a photograph. Each page of that Bible is photographed here. It's in two volumes. And, of course, it was printed in Wittenberg, and the translation was done by Herr Professor Dr. Martin Luther. Here we go. Here's the title page. Oh, it's beautifully illustrated, too. There's a, a picture for most books and a, uh, a large, intricate, detailed drop cap from the beginning of every chapter. But here's the interesting thing. In, in Luther's book, he follows the Christian Bible, which had been set by Jerome. But his title for um, the law, the first five books, is... Das erste Buch Mose, das andere Buch Mose, das dritte Buch Mose, das vierte Buch Mose, das fünfte Buch Mose. And then he gives over on the right-hand side, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numeri, Deuteronomios. So the books of Moses. Jews and Christians agree. Those first five books are the books of Moses. And they're called the law. There's history in there as well, but they're called the law. They're referred to as the law. And then the prophets, eight books. Well, Joshua, Ruth, Ruth gets appended to Joshua. It follows Joshua in our Bibles, and that might have puzzled people from time to time. Why is the book of Ruth, which is only four chapters, why is it stuck in there right after the book of Joseph? Well, it's chronologically about where it ought to be. But <clears throat> if you're doing a scroll... And you have 21 chapters for Joshua, and then you have four chapters for Ruth. A scroll with four chapters is going to be a little tiny, dinky thing, hardly worth doing a separate set of dowels for. So they just, at the very end of the scroll for Joshua, they put the book of Ruth. So it has to do with the, the, the physical properties of how it's being transmitted. Judges, Samuel, Samuel's one scroll. We divide it up in two because there's a bunch of chapters. Kings, they do it as one scroll. We divide it up into first and second. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. And Jeremiah is like 50 chapters. Lamentations is five. Same thing. You get to the end of the scroll, next book, it's by the same author. <clears throat> Do you want to start another little scroll just for five chapters? Or you just put the five chapters at the end of the scroll of Jeremiah. So that gets combined. Ezekiel, and then the book of the 12. That's the 12 minor prophets. The writings are Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah get combined as well, and Chronicles. So again, the bottom line on all of this is the Jewish Old Testament has the same books as the Christian Old Testament. The content is the same, identical. The number of books is different. Interestingly enough, okay, I've got to pull this up again. Luther will always get me on a rabbit trail. This is fun. He gets to the writings. He has the sayings of Solomon, the preaching of Solomon, the song of Solomon. And then over the right, he says, oh, yeah, that's uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. But he identifies them in his list here of 24 books, the, the sayings of Solomon, the preaching of Solomon, and the song of Solomon, which I, I kind of like. I wish we could get some of our English Bibles to do that, to those three. It would, would emphasize the unity uh, and the authorship of all three. Okay, so why is the structure of the Jewish Bible important? Well, Partially, next slide, partially because the Old Testament is quoted 283 times in the New Testament. So people who say that, you know, there's no point in reading the Old Testament, that's the Old Covenant, it's passed away, it's not really relevant to us as Christians, we're not Jewish, so, you know, why? Well, except that the people who wrote all of the books of the New Testament kept referring back to it kept quoting verses from it, kept saying that this is connected to that and that God, the book of Hebrews argument always, God has always saved his people in the same way. Old and new, the the roll call of faith in the book of Hebrews is these were saved by faith. And the reformers knew this and emphasized it. I think it's something we need to get back. Calvin says the church is the body of the elect from the beginning of time to the end of time who were saved by faith. Dante in the Divine Comedy, when he gets to paradise and he, he starts describing this huge stadium-like structure with all the saints in the presence of God, he has half of it reserved for the saints from the Old Testament and the other half for the saints from the New Testament. And they're all there saved by faith. Jesus quotes the Old Testament a lot. And there's a really important passage in Luke, one of his appearances to his disciples after the resurrection, where he meets and starts explaining to them the prophecies from the Old Testament. Luke 24, verse 44 to 45. Here's what he said to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Well, the scriptures, 
Jesus just mentioned the three parts of the Jewish scriptures, and Luke adds the label in his little commentary there, his description of what Jesus had just done. But when Jesus says the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he's talking about the three parts of the Bible. The, the, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures are divided into three parts. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is kind of a shorthand for all the other writings. Here's another quote. Actually, I've got this a little bigger on the next slide if you want to go one more. Yeah. Um, earlier, in a rebuke to the Pharisees, basically he's telling them, you know, <clears throat> you, you, your fathers killed the prophets. Your fathers built tombs to the prophets, but they built tombs to them because they had killed them. He said, you're just like your fathers. You kill the prophets. And he's charging them with responsibility and blood guilt for having killed the prophets. And again, this is Luke 11. He says, the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. And, and I have to tell you, I was 67 years old in about a week, i.e. last Thursday, when I finally understood what this passage meant. I'd never seen this before. When Jesus says from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, it's like, why Zechariah? Why? I get the blood of Abel because he's the first martyr in the Bible. He's the first person killed, killed by Cain because of his, that God showed him favor and, and Cain was envious. So the first martyr, first book, Old Testament. Blood of Zechariah is the last martyr in the Jewish Bible. It's in the book of Chronicles toward the end. It's in Second Chronicles 24. So Jesus is basically saying from the first scroll to the last scroll, from the first person killed in the scrolls to the last person killed for their faith. All of the blood of all of the Old Testament prophets whom you martyred is going to be charged to this generation. But Jesus is basically endorsing and, and by referencing those two individuals, he's referencing the way in which the scriptures were organized and understood in the synagogue teaching and the temple reading from the first book, first scroll to the last scroll. I had never seen that. Nobody had ever explained that to me. Um, thank you. I read it. Thank you, Neil Lightfoot. I read it when that book came out. Somehow it never penetrated my brain or, or didn't stick in my memory anyway. Okay, so next slide. So why those 22 or 39 books, depending on how you're counting? When was that set of scrolls fixed? When, when's it first identified as the inspired writings? And who decided why those books and not others? There are other ancient scrolls. There are other ancient scrolls from Israel. Why those and not the others? Okay, that's how we got the Bible. So next slide. The urban legend first. You may have heard reference to something called the Council of Jamnia in the first century um, after the death of Jesus, that this is when the rabbis sat down and decided which scrolls were scripture 
and which scrolls were not. And that, my friends, is an urban legend. It's an urban legend made up by people who want to cast as much doubt on the authority of the scriptures as they can. It's not true. We don't have any records of a council at Jamnia. We have no idea what the date might be. We have one letter from one rabbi who mentions a decision by other rabbis in a meeting of rabbis really about one topic. One rabbi had written that the scrolls of Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs um, contam- or, yeah, handling those scrolls contaminated you with sin. There was a criticism of Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. It's not just the Baptists. Um, Song of Songs will... I won't say. I couldn't preach a sermon and do a long explication on Song of Songs unless we sent the children out of the room. (laughs) Suffice it to say, it's intended for adults. It's a beautiful picture of romantic love between a husband and a wife. So one of the rabbis objected, and, and so there was doubt cast. So the proposal was basically to debate, should we take those two scrolls out? Not which scrolls do we want to recognize and accept. It's basically one rabbi has raised a question about these two scrolls. Let's talk about it. Should we leave them out? And the answer was a decisive no. For centuries, everybody has recognized you have the sayings of Solomon, you have the preaching of Solomon, that's Ecclesiastes, and you have the song of Solomon. We should keep him in. But we don't know when that meeting was held. We just have one letter that references, oh, yeah, there was this little meeting, there was a debate, there was a dispute. We decided, yeah, that rabbi's wrong, they ought to stay. It's not the point at which the scrolls of the Old Testament were designated as the canon and inspired. It's kind of a little theological debate council thing. There's very strong evidence that the Old Testament canon was fixed much, much earlier, centuries earlier than that. Um, And evidence from um, outside the Christian community, Josephus, um, the Jewish historian who wound up um, in Rome uh, as a, uh, with the emperor as his patron, he switched sides in the Jewish rebellion and joined the Romans. So from the Jewish community, he's a traitor. But he grew up as a Jew, and he actually had played a part in the rebellion before he switched to the Roman side. He writes a defense of the Jewish nation uh, called Contra Appian, and he mentions 22 books in the Old Testament, and guess what? It's the same list we got now. It's the same list in the Jewish scriptures. It's the 39 books of the Christian Old Testament. Origen into the second century, mentions 22 books in the Old Testament. He's going by the, uh, the designation, the count of the Jewish arrangement of the scrolls. Jerome, who did the um, most popular, most widely read, um, most copied translation of the Old Testament uh, in around 400 A.D., he has letters strongly asserting that the correct number of scrolls for the Old Testament are the 22 that the Jewish rabbis have always recognized. And then going back even further, you may have heard of the Septuagint. It's the most important translation of the Old Testament before Jerome's. It's a translation from Hebrew into Greek. Jerome translated from Hebrew into Latin. Hebrew into Greek is because of the 
um, the Greek rulers um, in Egypt, Alexander the Great conquered Egypt, made it part of his kingdom. So there's a Greek governor there, and the Greek governor, actually, there was a large Jewish community already in Alexandria, and his librarian suggested that the library should have a copy of the Jewish scriptures in Greek. And so they commissioned Jewish um, scholars to do that translation. There's one letter that describes how that was done. They were invited to a large banquet. There were 72 Jewish scholars, um, six from each of the 12 tribes, which would have been impossible because 10 of the tribes had lost their identity by then. But some people like numbers. And uh, they were commissioned to divide the books up and do their translations. And they came back in 72 days and uh, had a finished translation. All of that is probably a little doubtful, but there's some historical event underneath that. There is some connection between the Greek rulers of Egypt and the library in Alexandria and this translation into Greek. It's done 3rd century B.C., so 250 years before the birth of Jesus. And guess what? It's the 22 books. It's the 22 scrolls. Same ones we have today. Also kind of an interesting little footnote um, and has prompted a lot of interesting speculation. When Mary and Joseph and Jesus went to Egypt, where did they stay? And it doesn't say. It just says they went to Egypt and they waited for Herod to die and then they came back. But there's a long history of speculation that they went to the Jewish community in Alexandria and Jesus was then taught by the finest scholars in the world as a very young child for at least a couple of years, maybe until he was fired, maybe where he learned to read. <clears throat> we know he read Greek and Hebrew and Latin. We know he spoke Aramaic as well, so all four of those languages of the ancient world because we have words from Jesus' mouth in all four of those languages. We Americans are so parochial. <clears throat> we have a hard time with colloquial Spanish. Um, okay, next slide. So the question is, okay, so the, the canon of Scripture is fixed for the Old Testament by 250 B.C. at the very latest. We know it's fixed then. Probably it's fixed earlier. Did the text change over time? And we have the problem of these scrolls all come from different ages. These scrolls are written over a thousand-year period. Moses is 1500 B.C. Ezra, who writes the last section, probably writes Chronicles, is 450 B.C. So we've got a thousand years between the oldest scroll in the Old Testament canon and the last scroll of the Old Testament canon. And then 450 years down to the Septuagint, is it possible that it changed over time? Is it possible that the words of Moses changed over time? Well, what's our oldest copy of the Old Testament text? Next slide. We have one codex from 895 A.D. Um, it's the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, really, the Cairo Codex. It doesn't have the complete set of the um, 22 scrolls. By the way, codex is just a fancy name for book. 
The codex is where the sheets of um, papyri or, or animal skin, instead of being sewn end to end and rolled up in a scroll, the codex takes those and just stitches them along one edge. The advantage being now you can write on both sides. You can't really write on both sides of this. I can, I can read this side, but it's not really possible. So if you cut those sheets, sew them on one edge, now we have a book. And books exist largely because of Christians and their Bible. Very first books were Bibles, first handwritten. And everything done before 1453 is done by hand. That's why we talk about manu- if you see a manuscript, a reference to a manuscript copy of a book, manuscript is it's just the Latin word for handwritten. So all the old manuscripts, and we have about 5,000 manuscripts of Old Testament books and about 8,000 manuscripts of New Testament books. The oldest codex we've got for the Hebrew, for any part of the Hebrew Old Testament is the Cairo Codex, 895 A.D., was not a particularly good century for Western civilization. It's um, sort of after the collapse of the Roman Empire and after the raids of the Vikings and after the conquests of the Arab armies. It's like most people are holed up in caves trying to live and not raise their heads too high. But we've got the former and the latter prophets from that scroll. The next oldest is the Leningrad Codex, not because it was found in Leningrad, but because that's where it wound up. Um, it's the oldest Hebrew manuscript of the whole Old Testament, about 1,000 A.D. So that's, you know, 1,000 years ago. But 1,000 A.D. is 1,000 years after Jesus' day. Can we be sure that the text that's in that, and, and this is what it looks like, is actually a copy of the Leningrad Codex, and it's about this size. That's, that's about life size. Um, except I cheated. It's a codex. It's not a scroll. I Xeroxed the codex and I pasted it into a scroll. Here's how we can have some assurance that that text is reliably the same as what it, the text was in Jesus' day and what the text does was all the way back to um, Ezra. Here are the Talmud regulations for copying a scroll. Uh, it's the next slide. You, you won't be able to read it. I'll read it to you. This is, the, this is the, what the Talmud says to any scribe who is going to copy a scroll. A synagogue roll must be written on the skins of clean animals, prepared for the particular use of the synagogue by a Jew. These must be fastened together with strings taken from clean animals, Every skin must contain a certain number of columns equal throughout the entire codex. The length of each column must not extend over less than 48 or more than 60 lines, and the breadth must consist of 30 letters. The whole copy must be first lined. And if three words be written in it without a line, it is worthless. Throw it away. The ink should be black neither red, green, nor any other color, and be prepared according to a definite recipe, which is given elsewhere. An authentic copy must be the exemplar from which the transcriber ought not in the least to deviate. No word or letter, not even a yod, which is a vowel mark, must be written from memory, the scribe not having looked at the codex before him. 
between every consonant, the space of a hair or thread must intervene. It really could be the same thing between every letter because the vowels are, don't have separate letter representations. The vowels are just the little marks. Between every letter, the space of a hair or thread must intervene. Between every word, the breadth of a narrow consonant. Between every new section, the breadth of nine consonants. Between every book, three lines. The fifth book of Moses must terminate exactly with a line. If it doesn't, you've counted the letters wrong. To the first five books, when you get to the fifth book, if you don't finish the last line of the last book of Moses at the end of a line, you made a mistake somewhere. Throw it away, burn it. But the rest need not do so. Besides this, the copyist must sit in full Jewish dress, wash his whole body, not begin to write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink. And should a king address him while writing that name, he must take no notice of him. The rolls on which these regulations are not observed are condemned to be buried in the ground or burned or banished to the schools to be used as reading books. So you can learn how to read Hebrew from one of them, but it's not a scroll you can use in the synagogue. This is a Talmud regulation. There's meticulous instructions. So until 1948, the oldest text we had, next slide, was that 985 for the prophets, 1000 AD for the whole thing. And then in 1948, an Arab child in the hills east of Jerusalem, next slide, was chasing a goat and ran into a cave. And in the cave were some earthenware pots. And in the earthenware pots, next slide, were papyrus scrolls that had been preserved in the desert. And he took them and sold them because he thought, oh, make an extra buck or two here. These look old. I'll take them to Jerusalem. Somebody will pay me money for them. And so the first eight scrolls were bought by two different scholars in Jerusalem, and they were like just gaga because one of the eight scrolls was the scroll of Isaiah. And they started looking at the papyrus and the text, and they realized this is much older than the Leningrad Codex. It's like so much older, it's unbelievable. This is like a thousand years older. These papyrus scrolls go back to the time of Jesus. Next slide. So here's the effect on the timeline. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest manuscript we had was 1000 AD. Right there. Next slide. They find the Dead Sea Scrolls. All of a sudden, we have scrolls that were copied in 200 BC. So we got, we, all of a sudden, we have the text of some of the prophets, eventually the text of every book of the Old Testament, all 22. All 22 scrolls were preserved there. And now we can compare. What does the text from 1,200 years earlier look like compared to the text from 1,000 A.D.? 200 B.C. Let's start comparing lines, letters. Letter for letter for letter for letter. The Talmud regulations had worked. It was a bit of a guess before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's like, 
Well, we think because of how strictly the scribes were regulated, we think that what we have in 1000 AD is with some pretty high level of certainty, we think it must be the same as the original text of the scrolls. They found the Dead Sea Scrolls and everybody went, oh, okay, the theory was right. It is the same. Nobody changed it. In 1,200 years, nobody changed a letter. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important. Because they confirm to us the fidelity, the accuracy of the scrolls that we have now. So next slide. Eight scrolls initially. They finally persuaded the um, child to tell them where he'd gotten these scrolls. They went exploring. They found 10 more caves, 800 scrolls, and thousands of fragments. The vast majority of the manuscripts are closely akin to or identical with the previously oldest Masoretic text from a 1,000 years later. It's a remarkable preservation of the exact letter-for-letter text over a 1,000 years. And not printed, not Xeroxed. To have the copy that was made in 1000 AD meant that there had to be generation after generation after generation of scribe taking a scroll and copying every letter, getting the lines just right. They did that for 1,200 years, and at the end, you've got an exact copy. It's just astonishing. And it blows a whole bunch of skeptical scholarship about the Old Testament out of the water. As the critics said, well, it was edited, it was changed. They left out stuff they found embarrassing. They embellished. They made something like, we got proof here for 1,200 years. Nobody changed the letter. So that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important. All right. <clears throat> next, next slide. We still have a couple of issues to discuss. Now that we have some remarkable confidence that we've got the right text, that we've got the text that was originally written. The question is, well, who wrote the Old Testament works? There's names attached to most of them. But the most critical case, of course, would be for the oldest five. The oldest five scrolls are the law given by Moses, 1500 B.C. And the question is, did Moses write those? It's 1500 years before Jesus. The scriptures make the assertion very strongly. Um, the very next scroll, the scroll of Joshua, asserts that Moses had written the book of the law of Moses. Joshua 8. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. Now, Jesus makes the same assertion. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus references the book of Moses. He says, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And we sometimes skip over that little intro, but that's Jesus' comment on that quotation. Jesus says, in the book of Moses. So was Jesus naive, mistaken, hoodwinked, deceived about who wrote that book? Or can we trust when Jesus says, that's the book of Moses? As Christians, I think it's, you know, that pretty much establishes Jesus said Moses wrote the book. 
Good enough for me. Yeah, okay. Well, not good enough for the Germans. Next slide. <clears throat> Karl Graf and Julius Wellhausen. May their names live in infamy. Um, it's actually not a new theory, but, uh, and this was all before, way before the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is at the um, end of the 1800s. Um, they came up um, in a collaboration with a theory about how the books of Moses, in particular, came to be written. They noticed that in the books of Moses, in those first five books, there are at least three or four different names used for God, Yahweh, Elohim. And there is some sort of an editor who seems to be putting things together, and they call him the Deuteronomist. And then they think there's a priestly editor who's putting all these things together in the days of Ezra. Their hypothesis is that Moses didn't write this in 1500 B.C. Some group of anonymous collaborators, revisers, put these things together at the time of Ezra after the Jews came back from the exile. And so that embarked on a whole hundred years of the power game of figuring out, okay, pick a passage from the Old Testament. Which of the four do you think wrote this one? You know, it's a hypothesis. Mm, let's see here. There is not a scrap of documentary or historical evidence to support it. It's a guess from the Hebrew vocabulary. And I am not a Hebrew scholar. I know about maybe a dozen words that my friend Avi has taught me on Saturday morning in our Bible study. I can use the apparatus to look some words up and, and, and get some sense of the meaning, but I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But people who are Hebrew scholars... People like my friend Professor Kitchen here say, if you read the Hebrew of the five books of Moses, it reads as though it were written by a single mind, single hand, single style, single author. The idea that he uses different names for God in different places is not evidence of different authorship. The other thing is, uh, Graf and Wellhausen backed this up, well... Next slide. Here's the problem with this. You will encounter this. Um, some, some smart skeptic will come up to you and say, well, one of the certain results of modern Bible study has been the discovery that the first five books of the Old Testament were not written by Moses. It is obvious that the book of Genesis was not written by a single author. Now, I'll say something about that in just a second. The most determined biblicists can see that there is no way Moses could have written the Torah. That's what I was taught when I was in college. I was flabbergasted when I got to my religion courses uh, as a freshman in college. They were all laughing at the idea that anybody could have been so naive as to ever believe that Moses wrote those books. This is what's taught. The, this German hypothesis about the uh, first five books is now presented as the scientific, literary, academic consensus. And, of course, everybody knows it. If you don't, if you, if you, if you don't accept this, then you can't call yourself a scholar. Am I right, Kenna? <laughs> Kenna and I are, every now and then she graces me, sends me papers that she has written, which are marvelous, by the way, because she's working on a, on a degree. Um, so 
The Graf-Wellhausen theory, among other things, next slide, is based on these assumptions. That Moses lived prior to all knowledge of writing. Remember, this is the late 1800s. There's a lot of archaeology that's been done since then. But at the time, they thought, well, nobody was writing anything in 1500-2000 B.C. And that there are anachronisms, especially in the book of Genesis, that prove that Moses did not write the law. For instance, there's no king in Israel until 1000 B.C. But there's a very interesting chapter that gives the genealogies of Esau. It talked about kings who were descended from Esau before there were any kings in Israel. They go, aha, see, this must have been written when there were kings in Israel because why would you say before there were kings in Israel? Well, they kind of ignored the obvious, which is that God had already prophetically proclaimed to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, from your line will come a nation, from your line will come kings. It was already a prophetic revelation and assertion that there would eventually be kings of the nation of Israel. So that kind of doesn't make sense. And, of course, there were no Philistines in the time of Abraham because they arrived much later. Yeah, well, um, all of these assumptions have been blown out of the water by the archaeology since then. Not only do we now know that there was a knowledge of writing by the time of Moses, writing actually predates Moses by probably a 1,000 years. And there's a paleo Hebrew script that reliably occurs in inscriptions in Egypt back to 1500 B.C. In fact, there's an article in um, uh, the Journal of the Biblical Archaeological Society just this past month, BAS. Um, There's a professor who um, makes a case. I don't know if it's going to be widely accepted because it just blows too many things out of the water. That our modern alphabet the modern Western European alphabet that Western European languages use. It's not the invention of the Phoenicians. It's the inventions of the Hebrews. That the Hebrews saw how complicated Egyptian writing was, because Egyptian writing is like emoji writing. It's like, you know, symbol, symbol. This symbol is a word. This symbol is a sound. This symbol is a syllable. It's, it's, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and it's very hard. When it reads from left to right and then drops down a line and from right to left, drops down left to right, right. And you can tell which way to read the line by which way the animals are looking. It's crazy complicated. And the, the author of this article argues the Hebrews basically tried to simplify writing by coming up with a phonetic alphabet. And if you think about it, you know, the first two letters in the Hebrew alphabet, Alice Bait. Where do you think we got alphabet from? And that the Greeks actually copied it and learned it from the Hebrews. We now have inscriptions in Paleo-Hebrew that go back to 1500 B.C. So assumption number one is blown out of the water. Um, no king in Israel to 1,000. I explained that by prophecy. No camels in Egypt before 1,000 B.C. Everybody asserts that. It's like, well, we don't have any record of them there. But as other secular historians have often um, demonstrated, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Just because you have a record of something, it doesn't prove that it wasn't there. It just means you don't have a record of it. So the Camels may have been much less common. Abraham, it talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob having camels. And then the archaeology has caught up with 
the Bible, this is the amazing thing over the last 150 years, every time the archaeologists go looking for some place mentioned in the Old Testament, they find things that demonstrate the historical reliability of the Old Testament. They don't find things that disprove the Old Testament. They find things that confirm the Old Testament. They've started to find little figurines of camels from 1,200, 1,300, 1,400. And the funny thing about that is the first first one that they found in Syria, almost a toy figure, was, well, it looks like a horse, but it's got a big hump on its back. I don't understand why they would do a horse with a big hump on its back. You turkey, that's a camel. You know, but there weren't any camels then. Like, how do you know? Because we all know there weren't any camels then. Well, but you got an image of a camel. Yeah, but it couldn't be a camel because we know there weren't any camels. Some theories are so crazy that only academics can believe in them. True. Okay. Final slide. I come back to the New Testament assertions that Moses wrote the law. John 1.17, the law was given through Moses. James, not the author, not the, the author, well, no, it is the author, but not in the letter. It's actually James being quoted in the book of Acts. Moses, from generations of old, hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. If you're reading Moses in the synagogue on the Sabbath, what are you reading? Five scrolls of the Pentateuch. Paul affirms, Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. Philip reports to Nathaniel, and I loved hearing this. It was part of the monologue last Sunday. Um, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That wasn't just made up for the monologue. That was actually a quote from the Gospel of John. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. And then again, Jesus quoting from the Old Testament says, Have you not read in the book of Moses? Was Jesus confused, deceived, mistaken, fallible human being? The modern scholars can accept that fine. Well, yeah, that's just what people believe in the first century. We now know because we're 21st century scholars. We know that's not true. Except you don't know that. In fact, there's a whole mountain of evidence that speaks against that. Here, here's, you know, from 2003, the reliability of the Old Testament. This is great because it doesn't really talk about the canon or the fidelity of the text. This talks about all of the archaeological and confirming passages from documents from other civilizations that confirm various details in the Old Testament scrolls. So, conclusion. We have the reliable text of the scrolls as they were originally composed over a thousand years and faithfully transmitted down to us today. We can actually read the words that were written. We can't, we don't have the original autographs, but we can be, be confident that we know what those original autographs said, what the words of scriptures were as originally written by the authors of the Old Testament scrolls because they were faithfully copied. We know that because we have those two test points 1,200 years apart where they're identical. 
And then we have the confirmation as to the reliability. Why are those scrolls in the canon and not others? Because the Jewish nation recognized their authority. It wasn't a council that sat down and picked and choose and voted for all by the scroll in, in or out. Who wants it in? Who wants it out? Reliably, over a period of centuries, they recognized and there was a, a, a universal consensus. These scrolls are where God has revealed himself. And that's the backdrop. Really, I think that's necessary for us to understand the New Testament, which I'm going to talk about next Sunday. So I hope this has proved helpful to you. I've, trust me, I've really only scratched the surface. There's so much more. It's such an incredible testimony to the reliability of God's word, um, confirmed by so many academic writers, so many historians, so many archaeologists, that we can be confident that what we have here is accurate, reliable, trustworthy, historically true. Amen. Let me, let me pray for us all and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you that you revealed yourself in words that you gave to Moses and the prophets and those who did the writings to Solomon, a revelation of yourself, that these were faithfully written down and faithfully copied and faithfully handed from generation to generation and faithfully and providentially by your care preserved so that we might know truly what you want us to know about who you are and what you have done in history and how you have loved and redeemed your people. We give you thanks for all those who through the years have faithfully handled your word. We thank you for the gift of revelation that you have provided for us. Father, I pray that you would bless all those who have heard this, that you would strengthen them in their faith, that you would send your spirit to guide them and stir them up and to give them the words to say to all those whom they encountered, to give an explanation for the hope that is within us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.